I'm Al Filreis, and this is Poem Talk at the Writer's House, where I have the pleasure of convening three friends in the world of contemporary poetry and poetics to collaborate on a close but not too close reading of a poem. We'll talk, maybe even disagree a bit, and perhaps open up the verse to a few new possibilities and, we hope, gain for a poem that interests us, some new readers and listeners. And I say listeners because Poem Talk poems are available in recordings made by the poets themselves as part of our Pen Sound archive, writing.upen.edu slash Pen Sound. Well, we're here in Philadelphia in the Wexler studio, the Kelly Writers House, and I'm joined by Evelyn Riley, author of Styrofoam, Apocalypso, and Echolocation, all published by Roof Books as well as Hiatus from Barrow Street Press and the chapbook Fervent Remnants of Reflective Surfaces from Portable Press at Yo-Yo Labs, who recently presented visual essays on feminist poetics at The Kitchen in New York City as part of Joan Retallick's The Symposium, Thought Experiments and Poetical Play in Difficult Times, who lives in New York City. That's Evelyn, not Joan, and works as a writer for various museums. And by Joshua Schuster, who teaches English at Western University in Canada, author of The Ecology of Modernism, American Environments, and Avant-Garde Poetics, published in 2015, whose recent essays have appeared in Resilience, Antennae, Critical Perspectives on Veganism, and After Derrida, who is working on two book projects, one on the cultural representation of animal extinction and another on poetry and outer space. I just love saying that. Poetry and outer space. And who I'm glad to say, I'm thrilled to say, back in the fall of 1995 was one of the founders of this very Kelly Writer's House. And by James Sherry, the author of 13 books of poetry and prose, most recently The Oligarch, Palgrave Macmillan, 2017, and the poetry book Entangled Bank, Chacks, 2016, who since 1976 has edited Roof Books and Roof Magazine, published more than 150 titles of seminal works of language writing, flarf, conceptual poetry, new narrative, and environmental poetry, who founded the Segway Foundation, Inc., in 1977, which has since then produced more than 10,000 events. I mean, I've probably been to about... 400 of them, <laughs> 10,000 events of poetry and other arts in New York City. James, what the heck? You really stuck with it. It was it was the, my lack of imagination, but I just had to keep doing the same <laughs> thing until I thought of something else. Well, I would say structurally it seems like that from long distance, but actually you've engaged so many different kinds of people to curate for you, and it's an amazing thing. Congratulations. Thanks. Did you actually pass 10,000, like, is that a number? Oh, is there a long a time ago. Home? Yeah, okay. a long time ago. Well, it, it was easy to calculate because a lot of the events were uh, series. So you could right. just say, well, for 10 years, we did a weekly series. And was there a party at 10,000? Probably forget. No, I, it was it was post hoc. <laughs> Evelyn, thank you for coming from New York. It's great to be here for and the first time. First time in the Kelly Writers House. Wonderful place. Yeah, I'm hoping you would say that. <laughs> um, what's your first impression other than wonderful? Um, warm and communal. Great. Yeah. And Josh, you're back. Mm. So special to be back. Yeah. It's weird, right? Because we've done a lot to the writer's house, but... But it still feels like home. Yeah. Thanks. Glad you're here. 
Well, the four of us are here today to talk about a poem by Maymay Bersenbrugge from her book, Hello, the Roses, published by New Directions in 2013. Our poem is indeed the title poem, Hello, comma, the Roses. Maymay's pen sound page includes two recordings of her performance of this poem, and the recording we'll hear is from a reading she gave at Dominique Levy Gallery in New York City in March of 2016. At t- 7 minutes and 27 seconds, it's much longer than our usual Poem Talk poems, but we think you'll agree that it makes for a powerful listen. So here now is Maymay Bersenbrugge performing Hello, the Roses. My soul radially whirls out to the edges of my body. According to the same laws by which stars shine, communicating with my body by emanation. When you see her, you feel the impact of what visual can mean. Invisibility comes through of deep pink or a color I see clairvoyantly. This felt sense at seeing the rose extends because light in the DNA of my cells receives light frequencies of the flower as a hologram. The entire rose petals in moving air, emotion of perfume records as a sphere. So when I recall the emotion, I touch dimensionality. From a small bud emerges a tight-wound bundle of baby-skinned coral petals held in a half-globe as if by cupped hands. Then petals are innumerable, loose, double, sumptuous, unified. I look through parted fingers to soften my gaze. So slow light shining off the object is filtered. Then, with feeling, I look at swift color there. It's swiftness that seems still as noon light because my seeing travels at the same speed. I make a reciprocal balance between light falling on the back of my eye to optic nerve, to pineal gland, radiance stepping down to matter, and my future self opening out from this sight. A moment extends to time passing as sense impression of a rose, including new joys where imagined roses Roses I haven't yet seen or seen in books record as my experience. Then experience is revelation because plants and people have in their cells particles of light that can become coherent, that radiate out physically and also with the creativity of metaphor as in a beam of light holographically, that is by intuition, in which I inhale the perfume of the bourbon rose, then try to separate what is scent, sense, and what you call memory. What is emotion? 
Where in a dialogue like touching is it so vibratory and so absorbent of my attention and longing with impressions like fingerprints all over? I'm saying physical perception is the data of my embodiment. Whereas for the rose, scarlet itself is matter. The rose communicates instantly with the woman by sight, collapsing its boundaries, and the woman widens her boundaries. Her rate of perception slows down because of its complexity. There is a feeling of touching and being touched. The shadings of color she can sense from touch. There's an affinity between awareness and blossom. The rose symbolizes the light of this self-affinity. I come to visit drooping white cabbage roses at dusk. That corner of the garden glows with the quality of light I might see when light shines through mist or in early morning reflects off water. I stand quietly and allow this quality to permeate air around me here with a white rose. Color is clairsentient. This color in the process of being expressed, like seeing Venus in the day. Walking, I move in and out of negative space around which each rose is engaged and become uncertain of my physical extent as an object. Look at the energy between people and plants. Your heart moves into depth perception. For depth, read speed of light. I set my intention through this sense of moving into coherence with the biophotons of a plant and generate feeling in response. A space opens and awareness gathers it in. As at night my dream is colorless and weaves into the nuance, I can intentionally engage with the coherence of light beams, instant as though lightless, or the colored light of a dimension not yet arrived, as our hearts are not outside affinity with respect to wavelength, shaping meaning, using the capacity for feeling to sense its potency in a rose and to cultivate interbeing with summer perfume. So Josh, dimensionality. Uh, in the first section, the speaker, who is presumably the woman pondering the rose, perceiving the rose, says, I touch dimensionality, which is a great line. The second section was presumably the rose uh, pondering the woman or perceiving 
back speaks of the colored light of a dimension not yet arrived. So what what does dimensionality have to do with this whole thing? Um, seems it's like a multi-sensory, multi-experiential term. Um, you know, three dimensions, but more than that, too. Um, and there's a lot of um, different kinds of, you know, there's perfume, there's smell, touch, sight, words. Um, and I think that's sort of inter intersecting in this rose. Well, I think it relates to her sense of embodiment and both her experiencing her embodiment and how it intersects with the rose experiencing its embodiment. Whereas for the rose, scarlet itself is matter. Is something about the perception of color and light still being some uh, aspect of being in matter, which is dimensionality, or that's how I read that? So I read her work more as a structure, uh, that the dimensions here, among the different ways of interpreting dimensions, is particularly about nested dimensions, that is, things inside each other, in the way in which the petals of the rose are nested within each other. The woman becomes nested within the domain of the rose and vice versa, creating this network of interaction. So we really have to talk about the rose as a thing, right? Because it's a remarkable structure. I mean, the, the, you know, I think of uh, Stein and Williams, who both really were and Barbara Guest, pretty obsessed with roses and the physicality of roses. Here we have the rose in the first section. The rose does its thing uh, physically as if by cupped hands, which is, of course, what people do and have. Um, so the first line, my soul radially whirls, whirls out to the edges of my body. So rose and person seem to be struck similarly structured layers and so forth is that what you mean yeah i mean that the idea of thing that is in williams and some of the mid-century writers here is is expanded to mean something more complex that is no thing exists by itself but only in relation to each other so that the the idea of thing is is much more a quantum phenomenon mm -hmm. rather than uh, uh, something that exists by itself which seems now in the in the light of this poem rather naive josh felt sense first section fourth stanza this felt sense at seeing the rose extends can you just close read slash translate that into english that is not the poem <laughs> I think uh, there's a lot of, um, I, I will say, pre-linguistic experience in this poem. And um, so felt sense. So before we even have to translate it into words or uh, metaphors or images, there's a lot of contact, pre-linguistic experience interchanging, interfusing with the speaker and the rose. That even previously phrased, my soul radially whirls out to the edges of my body. It's... It, there's sort of the soul is already being moved um, before it's really understood what's going on. Evelyn, there's a lot of clairvoyance here as well. There's a stuff that's in the DNA. Right. So sorry to I'm sorry to break in with a giant question, but whatever ecopoetics is, this is a great example. Insofar as what I said is true, what would you like to say about that? 
Well, just to back up a little bit, <laughs> um, there's clairvoyance and clairsentience, and she yeah. gives the rose clairsentience. I didn't know if that was a neologism or not. But I think it must be, right? I think That's it is. That's in the second section. So, um, color is clairsentient. Right. And, and color is very much a part of the rose's being and expression. It's color in the process of being expressed. So that's her attempt to see something from the point of view of being the rose. So I think just that assertion that there's some relationship, and she's using these words to assert the relationship voyance, it has an eco-poetic aspect in that it's trying to express those relationships. And a little bit being, I, I think even though she says the second half is from the point of view of the rose, it's actually only for about three or four lines, because then it goes back to she comes to visit the white cabbage roses. So you got a third person who is the woman, presumably, again. Well, the her is very interesting in, in the second section, and that because she starts, second section really tries to be of the rose, right? The rose communicates. And then the second line, her rate of perception, and you, it wobbles, I think, who the her is. I, I think the con- the, it gets confusing if you just focus on point of view instead of the underlying structure, which is the network that she's building these points of view on, and the vocabulary here in work, words like coherence, affinity, emanation, worlds, these interbeing, these, these again are a, a nested hierarchy that she's trying to build of a network model of the universe, which is key to any ecological view of language or, or of our surroundings. I like that nested idea. I, I think of the verbs in particular as very sort of um, verbs that are sort of sensing themselves a lot of time. Um, so touching and being touched, drooping, um, glowing, um, gathering, weaving. These are sort of verbs that sort of interweave themselves as this poem keeps developing. People have said of May May's lines, and this is a this book is a great example of it. You know, she writes the long line that's it's often like a sentence. Then you get the big break, like a stanza break. And she reads, at least this poem was a lovely reading. She reads them slowly, so she slows everything down. Does that have anything to do with that performative aspect, that matter of lineation and of stanza creation? Does that have to do with the content in this case? I mean, obviously the answer is yes, but... Well, specifically, I think she talks about complexity as slowing things down. Because across the network, if it's a complex set of relationships, the number of moves back and forth across the network inevitably slows the thought. I'm wondering why you know there are no line breaks, and why not? Um, but each sort of sentence becomes like this sort of discrete sort of uh, the, the observer noticing herself as she's noticing something, um, or watching form form as she's she's watching it um so that's what i feel like why they're composed in sentence form i think there's a musicality to her sentence form that's a non-traditional musicality and it, it wouldn't even be there if if she had line breaks there's something about that flow and the way she reads that flow i th- i see that once again as her kind of being in the present experimenting with the sentence seeing where it's going to land and it feels like, even though you can tell this is incredibly worked work, 
that it's still just um, following each train of thought and seeing where the period's going to end. I, I think the reason that she does that is because this is all appropriated language. And I have in front of me a list of books that she gave me of the of the sources of each of these sentences. So that sort of answers your question. Wait, 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 wait. Are you saying that you talked to Mei Mei about this poem and she indicated to you that she's drawing some of this from books? All of it is drawn and then worked. So it's a two-part process, the idea of radical appropriation or creativity are both both inadequate to the purposes of poetry. Before you tell us some of these sources, Josh Evelyn, how do you deal with that information? Did you did you have a sense of that? I feel like this poem fits into an overall poetic she's been doing a very long time. And within the sentences, there's surprising juxtapositions, but they're still very, very filtered through this may may poetics and sensibility so it makes me wonder about the word appropriation i feel like it's a poet who reads a lot of disparate stuff and then they enter these sentences she does and they become very hers unlike other poets who appropriate and it's almost a collage of appropriation for her i think they're very mediated by her sensibility and it doesn't Whatever this means, it doesn't feel like a collage. Maybe that's because she's worked it, and maybe yeah. the collaging takes place around a single, relatively, relatively speaking, a single subject, as in subject matter. Josh, reaction before James tells us about some of these sources? I think, yeah, another word I thought a lot about was ambient. There's a kind of ambient integration, even if there's other sources, it feels like, you know, biophotons, that doesn't probably come from her immediate um, vocabulary, but maybe it's a quotation, but it doesn't feel stuck out or um, un, it, it's sort of integrated ambiently into the flow of these perceptions. The reason that I think May May takes such a long time to write her poetry and that she works so many hours on the poems, far more than most of the people that we know, is because she's taking pre-existing texts and then working them and working them and working them until they flow into a single person uh, fide mm. Uh, That's whole. quite a word. <laughs> Can you read a couple of the sources? So, so the there's a visionary plant consciousness. Wait, that's a book. That's a book. I want to read that book. And then the second one, as I'm sure we all know, is Second Nature by Michael Pollan, um, which is uh, his book about gardens. And then the Lost Language of Plants, um, Plant Spirit Healing. The Pleiadin Workbook, which is uh, very clairvoyant uh, in the Hannah Wiener sense. Yeah. And uh, Classic Roses by Peter Beals, which is a, a formal analysis of, of a Rose's Botany type book. Mm. So those are some of the, some of the books that she took sentences from, put them down on the page and then started working them into what she wanted to say. So in essence, created a limited vocabulary from which she wrote the poem. So is this um, roughly falling under the category of a constraint or is it roughly falling under the category of um, prompt 
and therefore freedom, freeing, liberation? That's a really good question. What do you think, Evelyn? I would guess prompt. Yeah. Josh? I Yeah. I mean, it's part of probably the process of this long communication experience that this rose includes. You, you have to research the rose. You have to learn about its histories, its forms, how people made them. Um, so it's a full pondering. This is post-romantic. It's not... I'm a poet, I'm going to spend hours looking at this rose, and then I'm going to say what I feel. This is the whole nine yards. Did I say that right? Well, I think all of those things occur. Like, for example, I know that she spent a long time going out uh, on the mesa where she lives in New Mexico, and she found a, a, a plant that she communicated with uh, for hours, and, and so she did that process of communicating with the plant not arose and then and then I think kind of built the idea of of uh, of the rose because it was it, it's so evocative of of prior poetry that it you know it makes gets our attention more than the cactus so it's a literary historical she wants to take that experience and then attach it to all of the poets particularly mo- early modernist poets who have, who dwelt on the problem of the rose, famously. So she wants to be part of that conversation. I, yeah, and I think she's intentionally trying to, to join the conversation, but advance it in the way we talked about earlier, which is to say the thing, the rose, doesn't exist. It's a connection that she has with the rose and the rose has with her that creates identity. I think, though, to me, her rose does exist, even separate from the relation, but she can't articulate that. So it's the relation she can articulate. I would say I find it kind of courageous for a woman to write a poem directly about a woman walking among roses. Uh, It's a hard thing to pull off, you know? Because it's... It's the ultimate uh, metaphor, right? Right. and roses, yes. It risks cliche. Absolutely. And I think think there's that going on, and I think... um, I see her for all her use of scientific language as a poet much more in the visionary tradition, and it's almost this harvested language that anchors it a bit. Mm. But to me, she's more a poet, um, really, in of, of that type that um, all these visual and light... Also, she doesn't... She's not afraid of light metaphors or beauty, all of which are very... Um, a lot of poets just run from because it's hard to manage, so I admire that. She just goes head on. But I think it's a poem like this. It's almost anchored by the science-like language, but really it's a visionary experience. Or a, she, she spent a lot of time with the Rosettis um, and, and reading their work. Pun not intended. Yeah. <laughs> Josh? Oh, I would add, though, um, you know, the Rose is maybe doing as much communicating and talking and sort of beautifying in in this poem. So it's there's no point in running away from that kind of language and the light and the emanation and the whirl because it's the rose is doing a lot of the talking too. Mm-hmm. I want to look at a spot where we're getting from the, the transition from one to two, the last line or the last sentence of one. I'm going to ask you, all of you or some of you, what you think of this. It's also a great summing up. She begins the line by saying, I'm saying, in other words, this is a, like a thesis statement. I'm saying physical perception is the data of my embodiment. What a great phrase that is. Whereas for the rose, scarlet itself is matter. 
the whereas turns toward the sec- the idea of the second section, which is okay. Now let's hear from the rose. So that's a great that's a great sentence. Who wants to deal with it? It seems like you know the rose is already scarleting or automatically scarleting. It, it's you can't separate the scarlet from the rose, and the first si- part of the sentence it's something has been taken in physical perception and that's become embodied, and that is maybe there, there's not exactly a gap there, but there it's it's a new kind of perception that has transformed the speaker or the poet, um, granted this visionary moment. Whereas the rose, it's almost already visionary as rose. Is there an envy a little bit on the part of the speaking subject person of the rose that gets to have this uh, color as itself matter because the person is left to do all this other hard work to get in that stance Am I actually I don't up the totally understand what's going on right there and in the next line because it's not equivalent being it's you know because yeah the scarlet itself is matter whereas the speaker's embodiment is based in perception and of course colors can only be they are about light and they only are about perception they're not intrinsic um, so there's a difference, and then in the beginning of the next section, it's that the rose communicates instantly with the woman by sight, collapsing its boundaries. The woman widens her boundaries. Yeah, so I, I think that um, we should look at the difference between Descartes' idea of perception as a kind of modest connection to the outside and Rambeau's idea in Voyelle, where where you know, colors actually have existence and and identity and characteristics, um, and and you can go a lot further with with perception that is and creates an ecological connection between the poet and the outside, and that's what I think that data of my embodiment is referring to. Is that the boundary, James? Uh, the boundary is the boundary between me and matter that's beyond my perception that exists aside from my perception. And if that's the boundary, then what does it mean to widen a boundary? Well, does that mean to increase the separation? Yeah. So she comes into the room. She's talking about uh, the aggression of movement um, into the space. The rose is not really able to move very much, although it does move somewhat. And she comes into the space and her emanations are substantial and the rose kind of reduces itself but but in that that little bit of motion it gains her attention so that that and she then feels very very um, concerned that she's overwhelmed the situation I know that the you know that her is is obviously referring to the the woman perceiving but it could also refer to the to the rose perceiving it could also refer to the reader perceiving, both perceiving and, you know, that line, her rate of perception slows down because of its complexity. I would think, again, that applies to the rose itself, to to the speaker, and to ourselves. Like, this is something about her sentences and the way she reads. She slows down our rate of perception, and then you can see it in front of you. In which I inhale the perfume of the bourbon rose, then try to separate what is scent, sense, and what you call memory, 
What is emotion? Where in a dialogue like touching is it so vibratory and so absorbent of my attention and longing with impressions like fingerprints all over? I'm saying physical perception is the data of my embodiment. Whereas for the rose, scarlet itself is matter. So Josh, the title, because you just raised the issue of readership. Who's being addressed? I mean, hello, the roses is either hello, roses. And by the way, not singular rose. There's a white rose in here as well as a scarlet rose. So it's more than one rose. Or, and then there's roses I haven't seen and roses I've seen in books. So hello, plural, the roses. Who wants to translate that? It's obviously multiple, but do you want to start? Um, yeah, it's very familiar address, um, direct address. Uh, it, it, you know, it's almost like hi, neighbor. Um, the roses, they're over there. Um, it, and it's... It's a word almost a little odd because the hello, so so colloquial. The rest of the poem is not very uh, using like that kind of language. And the article throws you off, The Roses. Evelyn, what are your thoughts about the title? Well, when Josh just said that, what I heard in his voice is almost as if, if it's a family name. If your neighbors were The Roses, you might say, hello, The Roses, almost mm-hmm. humorously. But but it, it's odd. It's odd. It stops you, the title. And even though there's multiple roses in here, it's an odd way to address them, although the poet's kind of saying, hello, the roses, there's the pink one, there's the ones in literature, there's the red one, there's the white ones. Who's saying hello? I can't figure that out. It's not the woman perceiving the rose and not the rose, because the rose wouldn't be addressing the plurality of roses. It strikes me as the poet, Maymay, is addressing the roses, and here is how one does it in the experiment of perception. I don't know. James, you're I like, nodding, I like, you like No, that. I like that you a like lot. That, right? I hadn't thought of it that way, but as mm-hmm. soon as you said it, I felt it was very May-May-like. I would like to do two things uh, before we wrap up. One would be to look at a particular sentence and ask us all to talk about it, one that picks up on themes we've already talked about. And then after that, ask each of you to uh, offer a final thought on the poem, something we haven't said so far, or indeed um, about the book, about the project, because this is a title poem, so we probably should say something about what else is going on. So the the sentence I want to look at is in this first section, and it reads this way, a moment extends to time passing as sense impression of a rose, including new joys where imagined roses Roses I haven't seen or seen in books record as my experience. So the predicate starts with record. The verb is record, I take it. Record as my experience. What's going on there? And, of course, this picks up on the whole question of time slowing down. Josh, give give us a start here. Hmm. You picked a lot of tough lines here. I know. That's my my one talent. Yeah. I like the, you know, roses I haven't yet even seen or um, seen in books. And yet they're already part of the experience. They're already part of the sentence. Um, imagination is reaching out to them. And um, these may not, these roses may never even exist, but they're already part of the poem. And that's the dimensionality of the rose. Now we're going forward in time to 
uh, you know, unknown future roses that I think are is part of this um, wider perception, this this um, widening of the boundaries. Evelyn, you want to pick up on that? Well, it is interesting. This including new joys were imagined roses. There's something about her the sensory experience of, so far, this rose, which might be one or two by this point in this poem. Um, Grammatically, we have the new joys. I don't know how where works, but the new joys were imagined roses, and then what you get next is a further modification of what the imagined roses could be. And then there's no comma after books, but there could be grammatically. And it's those imagined roses that record as my experience, it's very complicated. If that's how it works, what she's saying about the imagined roses, that is it, it seems so modernist at this moment, if I can say so. Well, it's almost as if there's no sensory experience of a particular rose without the cultural of the cultural history of roses being kind of co-present, even if you're not conscious of it. Right, and that's the scene in books part, seen or read. James? So I, I think the beginning of the sentence is, is pretty much a straightforward narrative. That is, the moment of seeing the rose gets longer and longer, and then it arises in her mind while she's experiencing that moment that time is passing. So then it's a, as the sense impression of the rose begins to fade into a thought about the rose, and then because Maymay views the universe as plural, it becomes roses instead of the rose. And now she's telling us what all the different roses are that, that she might have considered. That's pretty cool. I think we, the four of us did okay with that close reading. It's hard. Uh, For me, that's where Mallarmé's rose appears, though, in that line. The, you know, the rose beyond all bouquets. For some reason, it that's arises nice. in that line. Can we make, before we do final words, can we make a little bibliography of the kind of roses in poetry that she's, uh uh-oh, you're giving me a face. I don't want to do this. Well, we talked about Williams and Stein. And Blake. Blake. Romain de la Rose. Keep going. Oh, there are roses. There's roses. There's definitely George O'Keeffe flowers here. Yeah. And that's a Southwest influence. Yes. She was friends with George O'Keeffe and lives in Abiquiu. Uh, okay, Dante, so Dante, Dante, right? Both the light, the roses, the roses, star. There's something in there. Roses, a rose, a rose. Yeah, I was thinking of Stein there. I mean, I think that uh, an HD, of course, see rose. But the thing about roses is that um, HD got back to the kind of hard scrabble rose, the rose that's not beautiful, not the cultivated rose. This strikes me as a, an encounter with cultivate the cultivation of roses, uh, the kind of roses somebody would give you on an occasion. That's why, like Evelyn's uh, idea that this is a very brave poem to engage such a, such a fraught and feminine subject in an unafraid way yeah. and just go after it really deeply. Yeah. I think of, uh, I don't know if it's FTD or... <laughs> this is a non-profit podcast, so we don't try to do any, you know, branding, but... Um, say it with roses. I mean, in a way, that's just a giant, fabulous, smart, transcendentalist riffing off that concept of saying it with roses. Although I see, for some reason, I see what 
The setting for me is a woman who walks into her garden every day, and the different roses in that garden are in a slightly different space. So almost at dawn, you could walk out and say, hello, the roses, and the cabbage roses over here are in the state of just today, which wasn't yesterday, and the red one. It feels like, or I don't know why that's how I like I that story. No, I think that's... That's very plausible as an experience. Did you get any more inside dope from May May about the origin of this thing? I didn't ask about this specific instance, but but I can. I'll, I'll uh, have okay, my we'll people have to call add your that people. To the program, <laughs> the program note. Okay, let's let's get final thoughts. Uh, you came here today, uh, all three of you at some distance, to say things, and you didn't get a chance to say X. What is X? What do you want to say, Josh? Well, I was definitely struck by what Evelyn mentioned, just in terms of the visionary tradition and how fearless these these poems are, and um, it's they're not full of myth or um, a sort of um, esoteric language. It's fairly concrete, um, simple language, and this and I think the rose too. It's not a special you know species. It's just your average rose. You can find one on the corner if you want. And so it's very accessible, even though, you know, usually the visionary is is, is um, real challenge and a huge leap. This is very close. Great. Thank you. Evelyn, final thought? I was thinking more about her sentences, that they're real sentences, and, and in spite of the surprising juxtapositions, they're, um, in some ways, they're masterful about syntax. And how rare that is in poetry now, it's because they're almost assertions. And um, I was thinking how, for me, it's almost each one is its separate musical assertion. And I think, um, I was thinking about Whitman a lot, and for some reason reading this made me think of the noiseless patient spider, kind of the, um, you know, launching forth filament after filament and seeing which one might stick. There's that period and you don't know what the nature of the sticking is, but there's something about her poetics that feels that way to me, like the the sentence assertion. And it may not end up sticking to the world, but she can make one after another. I find that interesting. Hmm. Fantastic. James, final the, thought. The, the thing that I feel we haven't mentioned is Franco Moretti's idea of reading at a distance, that we're doing a lot of close reading, but for ecology, for environmentalism, we can't limit ourselves to looking closely because of the distortion that we get from looking closely and that we have to look at the surroundings as well as the person, the social context. So this makes a third component, which I think we need to address in order to understand Mei Mei's work. Fantastic. Um, thank you. My final thought uh, is really just to point everyone who might get a copy of this book to a poem, a long poem called Pure Eminence. And in the fourth section of Pure Eminence, we get to a line that really got me, that really spoke to me. Uh, something I th think a lot about living in a city and, uh, or actually driving from the city out to the mountains, in my case, the Catskill, Catskills Mountains. And constantly seeing what happens when there's a highway next to a place where there are a lot of animals, uh, deer in particular, but in the cities, dogs and cats. And just thinking about how our world interacts with their world, not very well, you know. 
So I'm going to read three sentences of part section four of Pure Eminence, but it's the third one that really gets me. So the first sentence is, my wishes aren't separate from the environment, which is a portion of connectivity with new species emerging all the time. Second sentence, I myself may be part of an emergence, dizzy, unaware I've crossed a threshold into new focus. And then the third, I don't see the released body of a slain animal running away, cavorting on the hillside. Mm. Yeah, that's, that I don't see, I don't see is remark is. Can you please help me say something about that? I mean, it's just so, I'm so moved by that. I don't see it, even though, of course, the poetry allows us to see this dead she animal. She puts it cavorting. Is she, I mean, that's the wonderful thing about poetry. Just because she calls it cavorting, it's cavorting, even though she doesn't see it because it's not, because it's dead. Unaware that I've crossed the threshold into new focus, which is why I don't see, but still, this deer who's been slain is up and gone. In the space of the poem, too, it's still alive somehow as well. Yeah, yeah it's pure eminence. Multi dimensional reality yeah. that is very hard to uh, capture, except Mamie does it. She really does. The book is called Hello, the Roses, and we just talked about the title poem. Well, we like to end Poem Talk with a minute or two of Gathering Paradise, which is a chance for us to spread wide our narrow Dickinsonian hands to gather a little something really poetically good to hail or commend someone or something going on in the poetry world. I know you've been thinking about what you want to recommend. So, Josh, what do you got? Sure. I'll recommend two poets from London, Ontario, Tom Cull current poet laureate of the city, and David Hubert, um, a student of mine who, who does um, fiction as well as poetry. They both have recent books out. Fantastic. Evelyn. Um, I wanted to recommend a young poet named Ajua Greaves, who works on the relationship, uh, her relationship with plants. Um, and Belladonna just recently published uh, her first chapbook, which is called Close Reading is Forestry. Fantastic. James. So I, I want to talk about uh, Bay, two Bay Area writers, uh, Tangal Eisenmartin, um, who's one of the few people to be able to write truly lyrical political poems, um, and uh, a woman named Sarah Larson, who, uh, who has a new book out from Roof. Fantastic. I'm going to seed my time very senatorial statement, cede my time to the three of you. So I'm going to ask each of you to tell me something about what you're working on. So Josh, tell me about poetry in outer space. Give me the uh, two-sentence pitch about that project. What are you up to? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm interested in interstellar messaging, and whatever message would be sent uh, would have poetic properties. It would, And it would be um, you know, there would be poetics in the message, in the reception of it. It would change our sense of poetics. The other side has a poetics. What would that be? That's good. It's hard to do that. You did it. Evelyn, what are you working on? Um, two things. Is I am uh, interested in poetic prose, which is new for me, and maybe even um, reading some of May May's work, the sentences that almost become paragraphs. We didn't really talk about how they enlarge to near paragraphs. That interests me, that flow between lines and paragraphs. Uh, and then I, I've also been thinking about um, um, 
new indigenous poets and their relationship to new languages of uh, poetic performance and ritual and relationship to the environment. Fantastic. James, before you tell us what you're working on, I just want to thank you for Segway Foundation, 10,000 plus events and all the books, roof books, including Evelyn's. So thank you for all that work, right? It's hard work. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah. What are you working on? So I'm just finishing a, a book that's the, the fourth in the environmental cycle that I've been working on for 20 years. This is called Selfie, uh, about identity and environment. So it's, it, I've addressed you know uh, the global picture in our nuclear heritage, the political picture in the oligarch, and, and now this, is, this one is to say, well, I, I haven't really talked about the self, so this is, this is Selfie looking at the relationship of the individual to environmentalism. Thank you all. Fascinating projects. Well, that's all the perception as the data of embodiment we have time for on Poem Talk today. Poem Talk at the Writer's House is a collaboration of the Center for Programs and Contemporary Writing and the Kelly Writer's House at the University of Pennsylvania and the Poetry Foundation, poetryfoundation.org. Thanks so much to my guests. Evelyn Riley, Josh Schuster, and James Sherry, and to Poem Talk's directors and engineers today, Zach Cardner, and also Chelsea and Anthony, been out there. Thank you both. And to Zach, again, who is Poem Talk's excellent editor, and a shout-out to Nathan and Elizabeth Light for their very generous support of Poem Talk. This is Al Phil Reese, and I hope you'll join us again next month for another episode of Poem Talk. <laughs>